Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, Princeton historian Claire Wills talks about her book Lovers and Strangers, an immigrant history of post-war Britain. The chair is Elaine Sison of the Dunleary Institute of Art, Design and Technology and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 1st of October 2017. Delighted to be here, and um, I was asked to give a few introductory remarks about the background to the book. Um, So I'll do that. The idea for the book came to me while I was looking for information on Irish immigrants in Britain in the 1950s and 60s. I'd written a book about 10 years ago on Ireland during the Second World War, and I'd become very interested in people who'd gone to work in Britain during that period. But when I looked at the 50s and 60s material, I was struck by how many of the sources I uncovered talked about the Irish in comparison to other immigrants. Police reports compared Irish with West Indian, Indian and Pakistani crime rates, for example. Sociologists recorded stories of mixed Irish-Asian lodgings And civil servants worried about how to stop Irishmen fighting with Poles in national service hostels. The immigrants themselves told stories about living and working alongside migrants from other countries. And I realised it didn't really make sense to isolate Irish lives from the wider experience of migrating to and settling in post-war Britain. Although there are obviously differences between different groups, particularly based on skin colour, They all shared the experience of arriving as strangers and outsiders to a country which was still largely culturally homogeneous in the 1950s. We hear an awful lot about the politics of immigration at the moment. I wanted to get behind the political story to the human story, to what migration might have felt like for the people who came to Britain from very different parts of the world in the 20 years after the war. There's a phrase often used in Britain, the Windrush generation, for the people who did arrive in the 1950s. Um, The Empire Windrush was a decommissioned troop ship that brought nearly 500 people from the Caribbean, mainly from Jamaica, in 1948. In fact, most of the men who were on the ship, there were also a few women, had already lived and worked in Britain during the war, in the services and in the munitions factories. They'd been demobbed in 1945 and they'd gone back home where they found it impossible to find work. So they came back to Britain in 1948. Windrush is used as a kind of shorthand for all post-war migrants in Britain. But I wanted to get behind that term to the detail. In fact, very small numbers came from the Caribbean until the mid-1950s. And that was because of the cost of fares. It was just really, really expensive. Most migrants in the immediate post-war period were from Europe. There were refugees from the camps in the continent, people displaced from Poland, the Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, or they were economic migrants from Southern Europe, Southern Italy, Malta, Cyprus, all of whom were encouraged to come to Britain by the Ministry of Labour, which actually set up centres. There was a big centre in Naples, for example, to process immigrants for work in Britain. And there was the largest group, the Irish, 
who arrived at a rate of about 40,000 a year during the 1950s. So that, in fact, one-sixth of the Irish-born population was living in Britain by 1961. The book took five years to research and to write, and as far as possible, I tried to use memoirs, stories, and reports which were written at the time. Um, I wanted to get as close as possible to the texture of post-war experience, including to the language that people used. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about sources in a bit, so I won't say more about that. But I did try to be as fair as possible to the language that I found in the historical accounts. Many immigrants did write plangently about their experiences of hardship, and many British people were disturbed and unhappy about the changes that the arrival of newcomers brought to their local areas. But there's plenty of evidence, too, of comedy, pleasure, and excitement in the encounters between immigrants and their hosts. I tried to see all sides, and I guess one message that I hope readers will take away from the book is that the history of immigration is complex and varied. It's tempting to tell simple stories, good, hard-working immigrants versus bad and sometimes racist hosts, for example, or scrounging and sometimes criminal immigrants versus beleaguered hosts. But I don't think those simple stories get us very far. There have been accounts of British prejudice and racism towards immigrants, and there have been accounts of the problems caused by large-scale post-war immigration. But we rarely listen out for stories of everyday immigrant experience, which I think has a lot to teach us, partly about British post-war history, but also about contemporary society as a whole. Each chapter of the book is devoted to a different character or group, the Latvian and Lithuanian women who worked in TB hospitals and mills in the late 40s, for example. The men from Mirpur who came to work the night shifts in Lancashire mills in the late 50s. Caribbean dancers and musicians, writers and intellectuals, Irish laborers, or Punjabi women who moved to Southall and worked at Heathrow. So partly the book is about the differences between uh, individual migrants, but there are also just a few threads that run through the book as a whole. And I'm just going to mention four of them. One is the way that the story of immigration over the period from the late 40s to the late 60s narrowed to be a story about race and about colour in particular. I was just thinking um, before we came in, um, when I was at school in the early 70s in South London, in Croydon, in fact, I used to walk to school with uh, two friends, one with Danuta, whose father was a Pole who had arrived. He'd worked, he'd been in the Polish army during the war. And the other was Barbara, whose father had come on, um, he, he was a, a part of the kinder transport. So he'd come from Germany in 1939. And there was me with my Irish mother. None of us thought of us, ourselves as immigrants at all. It was kind of invisible to us. And in the book, I tell very different stories um, from black kids in the 70s, like Hanif Qureshi, who was very, very, made very aware that he was an immigrant. So that's one thread that runs through the book. A second 
is the fact that most immigrants didn't think of themselves as immigrants at all. Um, they, they imagined that they were migrants coming for a few years, and that's maybe something we'll talk about. Thirdly, that for all the rhetoric about benefits scrounging, work-shy immigrants clogging up the queues in the NHS, I could find very little evidence for immigrants as takers rather than givers. When they were guilty of benefit fraud or criminality, they were only learning from their British neighbours. In fact, the more settled they became, the more able they became to work the system, all the systems, from fiddling your taxes to gaining a trade and a profession. And lastly, that migration is really just a very stark version of the universal story of growing up leaving a past, a childhood home to which you cannot return. Even if you go back, the place you left is no longer there. I went to live in the United States during the course of writing the book, and though I certainly wouldn't claim my um, migration has been any sort of hardship, it did bring me very close to the experience I try and write about of the kind of everyday present tense of your life being quite radically divorced from both the past that you've left behind and the future you might have imagined for yourself. So I will leave those comments there. Well, Claire, you've given us a really great overview of the whole content of the book. So what I thought we would do in this interview is kind of revisit some of those points that you made and then just sort of pull out some detail. And there will be time for questions at the end um, if there's anything that you feel that you would like, Claire, to um, elaborate on or something that you felt we haven't covered. So I guess coming back to the, the, the very first point, Claire, about the general overview about who came and why they came, People came for different reasons, didn't they? I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting to me is about the kind of the Windrush generation that come from the West Indies, the Caribbean. They're very different reasons for coming than Irish people at this time, or Polish people, for example. So could you just parse out the difference of who came and, and why they came? Well, I think the war was central to a large, very different reasons. Um, so Irish people were coming as economic migrants, but they were used to coming because many of them had come during the war. Of course, there's a long history of uh, migration between Ireland and England anyway. Um, the people who were coming out of the camps in Germany were coming because there was no other place for them to go. That, that This was their last exit, really, their survival. Um, that, those two groups are very, very different from colonial and commonwealth migrants, people who are coming from the Caribbean believing that Britain is the mother country. There's, there's an amazing um, phrase in, in a um, memoir by George Lamming um, in which he says, migration was not a word I would ever have used for when I traveled to Britain in, the 1950, in 1950. I was simply coming to a place which would welcome me because it was my mother country. I think it's almost impossible for us to credit that people really believed in the idea of a mother country, but they did. You do have some interesting points to make about the experience of, of those uh, Caribbean migrants particularly and their expectation, hope, and optimism are coming, and the, the gap that, of experience when they arrived. Did you want to say something about, you know, but the memoirs of the letters or the guides that they were given about wearing particular types of clothes or yes. not wearing your good clothes? Yes, one, one of the things that, 
If we look at photographs of Caribbean migrants arriving, they're always dressed in their very best clothes. I mean, gorgeous, crisp summer dresses and suits with little trilby hats and uh, zoot suits that had been brought by the American servicemen to Trinidad. And the, the British um, government, or ca the Caribbean service, keeps writing kind of reports saying, please do not put on your best clothes for arrival. You need warm clothes. You need really warm socks, solid shoes. Don't, don't think this is about kind of display. But I think one of, the, one of the very touching things is that people wanted to look their best. They, they were excited about arriving. If you compare that to um, memoirs by Irish people, leaving it at a similar time. It's all about the tears. It's about the dread. It's about, God, do we have to go? Must we go? Certainly, you know, and suitcases with just a pair of Wellington boots rather than um, a beautiful suit. But this, this narrative changes, this kind of narrative of optimism and welcome does change, doesn't it? Um, because initially, Obviously, the British government want bodies. They want labour. Um, and you talk about a market of bodies, which I think is a very interesting phrase. So it changes because of the legal framework. There's a legal framework that allows people to come from the empire into Britain. So could you just yes. tell us about so, what that is? So the British Nationality Act was passed in 1948. And it was really a way of... Um, the British government handling the fact that Canada and Australia wanted to um, s separate. And um, Britain was worried about how it would kind of keep the, the Commonwealth together. So it created a new category of citizenship called, the, um, you, you, you would end up being a citizen of, the, um, of Britain and the colonies. That meant technically that one quarter of the population of the globe could come and live in Britain. They had the right to to live in Britain. Clearly, the British government did not think they would <laughs> arrive. Uh, but as they began to arrive, and particularly as they began to arrive from the Caribbean and from India and Pakistan, um, they, th th there was a kind of panic set in. And from about 1953 onwards, the Home Office um, and Ministry of Labour are in this kind of endless tussle because the Ministry of Labour wants more bodies. It's quite pleased if people are coming from Barbados to work in L London Transport. The Home Office is worried about migrants arriving. And from about 1953 onwards, there are the, the beginnings of attempts to close down what was called the open door migration policy. And in 1962, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act is passed, which does radically decrease the possibility of migration if you're unskilled. So obviously, the Irish experience would be of interest, particularly to us here, although, as you say, it is only one of myriad experiences that you, you talk about in the book. And I think for me, one of the things that was most interesting was unpacking the experience of Pakistan and India and Punjab, etc., and different cultures and different ethnicities that come to Britain in a way that I think we really are not educated about in this country particularly. Um, and obviously, Ireland is, is a slightly different um, category because it's not part of it's not part of the empire at this stage, certainly in the 50s and the 60s. But I was struck by the way in which you talk about the Irish experience as both distinct and yet um, similar to other experiences. And I thought, particularly we're talking about uh, the Punjab, um, that you felt that there were similarities between the Irish immigrants 
um, to Britain and those from the Punjab. Yeah, so I've got a chapter in the book called Villagers, and it's a slightly odd chapter maybe because it's a category of rural to urban migrant. And I, from my research, I felt that both the Irish and the Punjabi migration were similar because it was rural to urban migration. It was very different from people getting out of German camps and very different from a kind of Caribbean mother country uh, migration. Um, it's true that very many Irish women migrated in the immediate post-war period. Partly that's because they're catching up, mm. um, because men have been able to um, move to work in Britain during the war, and, and mostly women have not. But another similarity between the Irish and the Punjabi is the numbers of uh, men living together in overcrowded housing, being um, subject to kind of fixers from their own country, you know, um, Irish fixers or Punjabi fixers who will get them work if you pay them, um, who will kind of organize your um, work, living conditions as well as your work. And a kind of, um, I think, a sadness around that particular um, male only uh, group in the early 50s. Irish men in particular did better as migrants if they got married. And I think the same is true of Punjabi men who um, otherwise you know, spent their time in the pub. Um, what's clear as well is that you talk about the way in which in people's home countries there are very distinct differences, uh, whether it be class differences or religious differences. And even when you're sort of talking about the rural to urban movement and how that mirrors um, the Irish experience, the Punjabi experience. But I'm also interested in the way that when Irish people arrive in Britain, those distinctions are gone and they're just paddies. Okay? Yeah. And the same as if you're from India or from Pakistan or if you're Muslim or Sikh or Hindu, you're just a paddy. And so what, what is interesting is that on the one hand, that's very reductionist when you're coming in. But on the other hand, can it be strangely sort of liberating? I think... Yeah, Donald McCauley talks very well about, you know, how he won't work with a, you know, a Dubliner uh, because, you know, obviously they're Not no good. Yeah. Uh, so this kind of in intense differentiation, of, you know, or a Mayo man not speaking to a man from Roscommon. And what is the point of this? They're all, as you say, just paddies when they're, they're up, up against, you know, the, the British the, yeah. for whom they're working. Um, I do think, however, apparently this is very much true... Um, of the Indian and Pakistani experiences where there were very few papers. Um, so you didn't necessarily have a birth certificate and you could pretty much make up your age when you sent off for uh, your passport and so on. So even though you're, you become this kind, you know, ju just a member of a country, another country when you arrive, you also have the possibility of reinvention. Yeah. And, you know, those of you who have read um, John Lanchester's memoir of his mother, you know, famously she knocks years off her age. And, you know, that's true of my, my Auntie Mary as well. We didn't discover for years that she was five years, she was passing for five years younger than, than she was. Um, so I think, I think the anonymity also offered a, a certain kind of possibility of becoming someone new. And do you think this anonymity, this kind of mobility, do you think that it it plays in women's favours more than men? I mean, do women do better sometimes in, in emigration than, than men do? Or, you know, what, what kind of opportunities 
does the migrant woman have that she might not have had at home? Well, I can only, I don't know if this would still be true, mm. but I think in the 50s and 60s particularly, and again, this is a similarity, I think, between Irish and, and um, Indian migrants, particularly for, for women who are from very rural parts of the world, um, didn't have much opportunity for work, having their own income, um, marrying beyond a very small group of people. Migration was, was a kind of boon. There's great stories I found from people going to South Hall. A um, lot, of, lot of my, one of my sources um, for this is um, folk music, Punjabi folk music, which is hilarious about the new found power of women once they're working in Heathrow and, you know, they're... they're, they're They've got power and they're got going money. to be choosy <laughs> and they can spend their money as they want. Um, you know, the church hierarchy here was very bothered by women leaving. Um, they, they were going to waste their money, obviously, because they were just... What were their anxieties, though? What were the church's anxieties about women with money? Um, well, remember, this is a period when um, a, a kind of rural austerity mm. is, is still kind of you know, prized as something that is um, uniquely Irish, uh, Catholic, and, and kind of un not infected by kind of a pagan materialist attitude that you find across the water in Britain. Um, and women who go and work and buy stockings or buy a washing machine or a television, mm -hmm. th these are all things that cannot be afforded in Ireland. So if... The very fact of wanting those things means you're sort of turning your back on, on a kind of um, yeah. pure Irish identity. Yeah. And there's a kind of a, da a danger of the seduction of, of modernity. Yes, the seduction yes, of things. yes. Yeah. Um, to what extent is, was there any kind of cross-marriage, I mean, eth ethnically? I mean, did, did Irish women marry Caribbean men, or do we, do we know anything about that? Or? Well, um, if you, if you look at oral histories, you would think that doesn't happen very often. Um, but in fact, I found, you know, secreted in little, you know, in places that you wouldn't necessarily um, expect to find it, lots of evidence of um, people either living with people from other cultures or married to them or uh, certainly working with them. So there's a lot more mixing than, than you'd imagine. I came across a great story by a priest in 1958. He... He, he's writing in the furrow, actually, um, and he's writing about you know the problem of people getting married in registry offices in 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 England, and he's been asked by a, the family back home to go and check up on mm. on a young woman who's gone astray, um, and you, you know so he he arrives at the address and he hides his bike <laughs> before he knocks on the door because of course priests' bikes are instantly recognisable or something. <laughs> and the woman opens the door and she's got a little um, child next to her with a bow in her hair. And, you know, the priest says, it was true, she was married in the registry office. And he, he says to her, you know, that's a lovely little girl. What's her name? Fatima. That's a lovely Irish name. And she replies, not at all. It's the name of the prophet's daughter. <laughs> she's clearly not married. In, in the Catholic faith. <laughs> um, but, but I think that, you know, talking about how you 
how you capture those um, experiences and how, how, as historians, for example, how those experiences at the kind of granular level of everyday life, they don't often, they don't appear in official documentation, you know, the births, marriages and deaths. And both of us would be counted as cultural historians, sometimes called not real historians. <laughs> but um, I'm just wondering, traditional conservative historians tend to really only rely on particular kinds of documents. And I wanted to ask you, because your book is woven through with oral histories and um, information about popular culture, what clothes people wore, what they what food they they um, ate, how they got to work, the kind of work they did. Very, very interesting different types of information about people's lives. And I was wondering um, what you feel is the value of those kind of non-traditional historical sources to the kind of work that you're interested in. And what does it bring? What does it give? Well, yeah, I'm not trained as a historian. Um, I began life, as it were, well, I began life sometime before <laughs> I began my career, um, as, as a literary historian. And I have always been convinced that texts tell us things that beyond the things that those texts know themselves. So I try and look at lots and lots of different kinds of document, rather than particularly oral history, because I'm, I'm, although I'm incredibly interested in oral history, it's not the kind of work I want to do, because I want to look at how language travels around a culture. Um, so, when I talk about um, people's clothes, for example, mm. it's always people describing their own clothes. I'm, I'm interested in how people are analyzing their own experience and what they think it's worth talking about. So for example, Stephen Burkhoff, um, who was the son of Jewish migrants living in the East End, um, talks very interestingly about shifting out of the East End in the late 40s um, and you know, moving into the suburbs and uh, Irish and Cypriot and Indian and Pakistani migrants moving in. But his father was a tailor. Mm. And so he still goes back to the East End to you know, bring his father's sandwiches or whatever. And his father's making a new kind of suit, a new kind of suit that um, the, the West Indians want to, want to buy, kind of really, really trendy, thick cuffs, um, you know, baggy trousered suits. Um, and what's interesting, me, interesting to me about that is not so much that that's what West Indians wanted to buy, but that Stephen Burkhoff thought that it was worth recording that his father had to learn to make it. So it's the textual account of that thing that is... But, but clothes are a really important language of communication. I mean, they're, they're sort of um, invisible in that we don't pay attention to them until they're visible and until we pay attention to them um, and because of fashion or, or whatever. And I, I sort of think there's some really interesting um, observations on clothing in your book. And I was also thinking about the film version of Brooklyn, um, Colin Tobin's novel, in which um, Eilish comes home from America and she's wearing different clothes. And the, and the clothes mark her status as being different from when she went away. Yes. And they change her social status, they change her economic status, and they also change her marriageable status. So I think that, you know, what really interests me is the way in which clothes um, for the um, migrant uh, 
communities are used as a kind of an expression of their own ethnicity and their own kind of individuality, but also for the returning migrant, how clothes may speak a language of their own. And I wonder if you had something to say about that. Well, yeah, I mean, particularly if we're thinking about Irish people returning um, at this point, partly it's not just clothes for women, it's makeup. The talk about women's suddenly using makeup, this is back to the kind of... uh, suspicion of too much luxury. Why are they, you know, what, what, why do they need this? And, and what, what are they hiding in the makeup? But, but there's also um, stories of, for example, um, laborers coming back to Mayo um, wearing really sharp suits, wide ties, wanting to display the fruits of their labor. These are, these are people who had probably being relatives assisting and not earned cash until they went to England in the early 50s. And they're both displaying their, their, you know, pride. And at the same time, they are marking themselves as different. They they can't quite come home. And their clothes say it. So do you think that, you know, that sort of entry into modernity or modernisation is is a kind of a cutting off point? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking... I kind of want to return to sources and stuff, but I'm actually thinking about the way in which when people send money home, they end up changing the home that they come from by virtue of the money that they give, like sending clothes home or sending items home, etc. Yes, I mean, I, I talk about this quite a lot at the end of the book in that a lot of, if we think about Punjabis, for example, they arrive because they want to get money in order to make life back home possible. They don't come to Britain because they want to live in Britain. That's never part of the plan. What they need is the money in order to move back to the Punjab. So they send money back to uh, bore wells or buy tractors or uh, and eventually, you know, buy more land, make the farm viable. But in that, in in the very process of doing that, they, they make it increasingly difficult mm. to come home to the place that they imagine that they will come home to, because it is gone. I mean, you do, you do talk about that moment, that tipping point when a migrant is no longer mobile and decides to, uh, that they're going to stay. And that often comes with family life. And I think there's, a, uh, you say, it's a quote, uh, the difference from where you made your living to where you spent your living. And I think that's a really interesting um, idea that once you start to invest in where you are, then you can no longer go back because it's not, it's not there for you anymore. Yes. I, I should also point out that the, um, the legal situation is also... Uh, hugely important here. So after 1962, um, particularly Commonwealth migrants could not keep moving back and forth. So up until this point, they'd come for a couple of years, uh, gone home again, maybe send a brother or a son or an uncle to take over from them. So there would always be someone earning to send money back home. But after the Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which um, radically decreased unskilled labor, uh, vouchers. It, it, yeah. it, it was the beginning of a voucher scheme. Um, people were frightened. They wouldn't be allowed back in again. So what they did was they brought their wives and family to join them. Um, and it's, it's that as much as not being able to return but I, I imaginatively. Also, yeah, I, I think what's interesting as well is that you make the point that when migrants think they're only going to be somewhere for a short period of time, 
they sort of take to the, the, the new culture quite well. They drink in the pubs and they go out and they, they assimilate quite well. But when they decide that they're going to stay, that's the point where they separate out and actually try and preserve their own cultural um, heritage, particularly maybe if wives and children come over from. So you get that you get that lack of assimilation, which I think is kind of interesting that the early migrants assimilated more than the ones who ended up staying. Yes. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot to be said about the role of women in this. Mm. So male migrants who are coming to work and send money back home, there's no reason for them to necessarily keep to dietary restrictions or religious restrictions or, um, you know, beef. Um, um, I can't even think of the word. What it, uh, um, have fidelity. What is the word for, for, for having affairs? Why have oh, I forgotten that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, have sex with other people who aren't their wives. There's no reason because nobody can, no, nobody's yeah, going to find them. Yeah. And in fact, one of the arguments about Irishmen drinking and fighting is partly because, you know, they're finally away from their mammies and daddies and they, they might as well just enjoy themselves mm. as much as possible. So where am I going with this? Yeah, so, so in, that, in that early moment, people kind of, assimilate to various yeah. kinds of behavior. Um, and as wives and families turn up, I don't think this is the fault of the wives. Yeah. The wives are not arriving and then saying, let's be, you know, yeah. decent, whatever, uh, now. It's just, as families are created, um, there's less need to integrate in, yeah. in, in all those different ways. You've got I, someone to cook your your, your um, yeah true. Diet I suppose I suppose what families bring a culture with them, um, and also to the extent of that is often the point when children arrive that people decide they're not going to stay in in the host country but they're going to return. Yes, because they're they're. They want to bring their children up in the culture they came yeah. from. So I can see that the need to preserve your culture in your home when your family come is, is very strong. Um, I, I just want to return to um, your methodology, okay? And that's not as kind of scientific as I might make it sound, but I'm just kind of curious that when you embark on a project like this and you think, I really want to write a history of, of migration and how people felt and what they thought and what they did and what they wore, how do you even begin to structure something like that or organize it? The structuring took me forever. I mean, it was really, really hard is all I... <laughs> so maybe I should ask a different question. What did you want to know or what did you want to find out when you started this process? I wanted to get to the variety of experience. To begin with, I thought I'd do that by focusing on different places in Britain. And I'd kind of, I'd be in Southall in 1965, mm -hmm. um, because that's when lots of women came and worked in Heathrow. And I'd be in Camden in 1953 with the Irish queuing mm -hmm. for you know, work on the street corners. Um, and it didn't work because I didn't have enough material about every place and every kind of culture in order to make it, um, to, to, to create a narrative. And that's partly because of uh, the problem of sources. Yeah. So in the end, I, I had to look at what I had. And what I, what I felt I had was a series of... Um, almost characters or stereotypes which were placed on migrants by the British host community. 
And I thought what I can do is look at each of these and begin with possibly how British people see, see this character and then unpack that mm. and ask us to look through the eyes of the immigrant. So what I wanted to know, mm. to go back to your question, is what does it feel like to look out of the eyes of the immigrant rather than... So I didn't want to write a history of, you know, the dark stranger, yeah. which is from the perspective of the white majority. I wanted as far as possible to turn it inside out. Mm. Well, you do that really well, but by choosing those, you know, the teacher, the homeowner, the scrounger, I mean, that, that's because it allows you to, to move between cultures as well, and between experiences, and it allows you to uh, make links between, between how they're similar, but more, you know, importantly as well, how they're different as well. But a, a question that I'd ask you that every researcher, every historian would ask is, um, how do you know when you're finished, Project? <laughs> um... God, that is a very hard question. Um, I felt, I suppose I felt I'd understood something. Okay. Um, and I, I partly, I had been worrying about this problem of um, how does the immigrant understand their present tense? Mm. Everyday life. You know, they, they know they've come from... A, so I'm, I'm talking here about first-generation migrants in a period when it's new. So they have to, they have to... They're endlessly making decisions. You know, do I stay? Do I go back? Um, where do I live? It's, it's, it's very decision-bound. It's, it's, it's kind of a fraught time. Mm. And I wanted to be able to understand that kind of everyday life and yet give a sense of what had mm. the reasons for it. And I suppose at a certain point, I thought, I do understand something. <laughs> um, I guess one of the questions then about, you know, when you're trying to understand what the immigrant felt or how the immigrant understood their own experience, you're relying very heavily on the immigrant voice itself. So you're lucky in particularly with the Windrush generation, um, they were all very educated intellectual, public intellectual, thinking of people like Darcus Howe and Stuart Hall and George Lamming, who were very able to articulate their own experience. And then within the Irish context, we have people like Anthony Cronin, who kind of fictionalizes it, or Donald McAuley, who writes Steel and Dury. Um, but you know, what about those voices that are not captured in those ways? Yes, that was hell. It was terrible. Um, so there are two things that I did, really. One was to look as far as possible at, you know, masses and masses of civil, servants, civil service documents, police reports, Ministry of Labour reports, Home Office reports, not so much for what the um, civil servant was saying, but for the tiny quotations that you might find embedded in those documents. Like, you know, like, um, like there's a whole passport scam. Um, pa Pakistanis um, basically using um, people to bring currency into the country. You know, you could bring in 50 quid, 45 pounds in traveler's checks and five pounds cash. So a lot of Pakistani immigrants have got no money at all. So they're, they're used as sort of mules um, by, you know, um, better off Pakistanis. Yeah. Um, and there's quite a lot of um, report, you know, they're interviewed, Kufat Ali, 
why are you here? Why have you got 45 pounds? And he will, ha you know, there's, there's, there's an account of why he thinks he's here. So he extrapolated from those reports. Yes, okay. yes. Okay. And then the other thing is that I tried to use uh, folk songs, um, short stories when I could. I, I was very lucky in finding a kind of completely bizarre epic poem that was um, recited in pubs in Wolverhampton, which I located through an oral historian who happened to have the, I think, only copy, probably, um, that was created um, around a Punjabi Sikh um, guy who had arrived in 1958, and it's his story to 1972. So I could find some so bits something of... something like that poem, is that a poem that was... It was a poem that was written down eventually, but it was just recited? I mean, what, yeah. what's in it? What, does it? what did it offer you, that poem? Um, so it's a completely bizarre and fascinating poem. It's a long, epic poem. Um, the, the genre is called a kisser, and it's kind of um, it's, a, it's like a forerunner of Bangra almost. It's, it has a you know strong rhythm. strong uh, rhythm and a chorus, um, but it's generally a story of kind of love. Um, so Hera, uh, you know, in um, it's like a Romeo and Juliet thing. And this guy, um, Maddo Ram, uh, I, I think was very well educated, but he was from a very low caste in the Punjab. And um, he um, creates a new story of um, his Romeo and Juliet story as he's left his wife back in the Punjab and he's arrived in England. And there's lots and lots of detail about, you know, meeting people in the pub, starting a relationship with a white woman, getting used to drinking spirits, this, this sort of thing. Um, but I think it's fascinating that after, in, in, you know, he obviously used to recite it in the pub because he talks about that in the poem. And after about 10 years, and I think this is really interesting, he decides, he, he has it printed by a company which obviously used to mainly do wedding um, invitations. You know, so they weren't used to this sort of big. It's 50 pages long. Um, but I think it's to do with the fact that everybody is writing their memoirs at the time. Sort of there's a migrant thing going on. People, people like George Lamming and, and Stuart Hall and so on. This is the early 70s. There's a sense that a migrant first person story is important. And he knows. He's proud of his poem. Mm. So he takes it down the road and has it printed and, and circulated to friends. Is there something here, though, about text making experience material, actually rooting, like something like memory or anecdote, and when you when you write it down, it, it documents it in a way that's more permanent. And I just wonder then if that speaks to something about um, how the immigrant makes sense of leaving, of moving, of not belonging, and maybe trying to find a place to kind of to secure or to to put those feelings or to put those experiences. Yeah, I wonder whether writing down is something I think definitely does happen in this period which makes recording in text uh, more important. But I, I guess I'd also say that so much music, so much Irish traditional music, the, the whole kind of ballad thing, yeah, it's being recorded in a different way. So, you know, something like that album, Paddy in the Smoke, which is being made in a London pub in 1967 or so. Um, that, that, I think, is similar to, yeah. to Maddo Ram's poem. Um, but a lot of it, I mean, you know, that's the nightmare for a researcher. A lot of it is lost. A lot of it is, is just stuff that people 
sang at weddings or... Um, Wrote and let us home yeah, yeah. that were never kept, yeah. Um, I suppose this brings me kind of trying to wind back up to the idea of home and uh, belonging. And there's a really wonderful anecdote or a piece that you uh, cite in the book uh, about the American writer, the black American writer, James Baldwin, where he's uh, in London and uh, he's, is it a taxi driver or somebody? Who's it's, asking it's him. an attendant it's at the again. British Library. Attendant at the British Library is trying to determine where James Baldwin is from. So James Baldwin says, no, but I'm from America. It's because, no, well, where are your parents from? And they are from America, etc. And he keeps on going until really determined to find out. He says, but where were you from before you were born? And I just sort of think, you know, that really resonated with me about particularly the Irish sense of having to get that location, that parish, that family, that road. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, as James Baldwin says, you know, the, the, the tragedy of the American black experience is that nobody knows where they were from before they were born because they, they were slaves. So um, I think, you know, this is a question for Baldwin that's rooted in race and racial politics. But I think at the end of the book, you really talk about your own experience as the child of a migrant um, or an immigrant and um, the idea of when you went back to West Cork on what were clearly your holidays, people would say, welcome home to you. And, and having that kind of yes. dislocation between, but I'm on my holidays, my real home is in London. And I just thought, you know, what is the, if we can kind of think about the existential state of, you know, or the kind of the, the the state of being in living and working in one time zone, but having another time zone constantly in your head. Yes, I think that we often think of immigrants as living in two places at once or living between two places. Obviously, this is sadly not true for people who are forced migrants and refugees. Mm. They can never go home. Um, but many migrants live, I think we understand them as living between two places, but I wanted to get also to the sense, which I felt really came out of the, the material I was looking at, that people lived in two times at, at once. That, that there's, there's a kind of, um, to go back to the, something like the Punjab or, mm -hmm. or the Caribbean, that, that's a past you can't get back to. You imagine it, as something that you could access in the future, mm. but you're cut off from it. So, so that so it's a sort of limbo. I, I use the term limbo in in the book, and one one reviewer said, "Oh, well, she's just you know this is far too dramatic. They're not in limbo." <laughs> and I don't think it is too dramatic. I think for first generation migrants in that period, there was a sense that you and it's a term actually I borrowed from Tom Murphy, and I think he's right, the playwright um, that that. Um, that, that you're, you're cut off from both mm. places. And you can create and be full of invention in the place that you arrive in. But it's, it's, a, diff it's, it's a sadness as well. There's an existential sadness. Um, I, I guess uh, one of the things, and thinking about the language that's used in the book about the different experiences. So we've got, um, you offer us a kind of a taxonomy of, of migrants. So you've got displaced persons, refugees, asylum seekers, economic workers, economic migrants, laborers, workers. Um, and they all have their own particular 
discursive formation, to, to use a term. But how does, I sort of think, does this offer us a way of talking about the deserving and the undeserving <laughs> immigrant? And to what extent, you know, does that language serve particular kinds of ways of thinking about immigration? Yeah, one of the things I found really interesting was take the um, refugees who are caught in camps in Germany in 45. There's 7 million of them, 7 million displaced persons from all over, uh, caught on both in, in, in all the zones in Germany. Um, and some of them go back to Poland, some of them go back to the Ukraine, lots of them have nowhere to go. Um, and so Belgium, America, Canada, Britain, they're, they're kind of cherry picking the, the, mm. the ones that they want. Um, so they have to be fit. And that, you know, they're basically turning refugees into economic migrants. And that's the discourse that they do it with. They say, look, 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 these people aren't refugees, they're workers. So they're, you know, they're putting out um, material in, in the newspapers, in the Times, for example, saying, trying to persuade people that it's fine to accept refugees because they're going to be productive members of society. So in, in a sense, you could see it as a kind of reversal of, of, of the deserving and undeserving poor. Uh, but there's certainly a ranking. There's certainly a ranking. Um, I think probably class is, is important here as well. But I guess uh, just really, we're nearly out of time now. Um, Ireland really remains a very mono-ethnic culture despite you know, the comings and goings, and we do have much more visibility of, of migrants over the last few years. But inevitably, with a globalized economy, et cetera, we're facing into the next 50 years of having that moment that Britain has already had. And I was going to ask you, maybe it's a bit hard, a bit tough, but what could we learn from the British experience? Um, right. <laughs> I mean, what do you think worked? Uh, yes. What do I think worked? What I think one could learn is that it never goes well when you pander to populist nationalism. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of um, the, the critic Stuart Hall, who, um, who was a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford, and he arrived in... England in to Oxford. He arrived from Jamaica in 1951 and did his degree and then his second degree and he was a teacher in London and then he got a job in Birmingham in 1964 and he tells a story about going to look for a place to live in Birmingham and by this time he's married a white wife, married a white woman who is therefore his wife um, and he talks about knocking on doors in the West Midlands, walking around Birmingham saying, and he says, this was the first time I had encountered the kind of racism that I had read about. I had been insulated from that, he says. You know, I'd been in Oxford, I'd been a teacher, and it was all fine. And he talks about the, the ugly, depressed atmosphere, which was an economic problem. Mm -hmm. These were urban economic problems. And he talks about the way that he feels in the West Midlands, those problems had been latched on to race, latched on to immigration, even though they were economic problems mm -hmm. rather than problems about, about race. And I suppose if Ireland could learn not to let that happen, that would be a good thing. Right. With that, I'd say thank you very much, Claire.
Thank you. Um, We have about 10 minutes for questions, but there are people with roving mics here, so if you want to just wait until... Um, there's a gentleman just actually up here. Um, I saw you first, I'm afraid, and then I'll come back. I enjoyed that immensely. Thank you. I went permanently to London in 1964. I came home permanently in 1965, <laughs> a year later. In the meantime, I did not experience any racism. I experienced something much worse, Irish on Irish. But I did have one particular experience. I was in a trench, and I was 18, 19 years of age. I was in a trench digging, and the people going that, there were people going that way, and people going the other way behind me. And they were speaking this gibberish. I was only a kid, so I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I stopped and wondered if there was anybody there prepared to speak Irish until I got a tap on the shoulder from behind to be told that the people behind me were speaking Irish. Mm -hmm. And the people in front of me were speaking Polish. It was only 20 years after the war. Now, the question I really wanted to put to you there was, when you were doing your research, did you look into, for instance, the archives in Murphy's, the builders? And did you speak to any of the people who actually would be my age, who actually stayed in England. I I, came, but just to finish, I came home in 65 on a bet that I wouldn't get an exam at the civil service. I did, and here I am. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you for your question. Well, I didn't look at Murphy's archives, partly because I think Alton Cowley and his book, um, The Men Who Built Britain, have done, has done that so brilliantly. He's looked at all those archives and he uses lots of fantastic interview material. What I did do was I, because as I said earlier, I wanted to get um, material written and spoken at the time, as far as I possibly could. So I don't know if you know, um, I'm sure you do know, that the um, Philip Donnellan film, The Irishman, which was made in 1965 in Birmingham, about Irish workers uh, building the Victoria Line and, and um, the M1. I believe it's the M1, yes. It can't be the M1, it must be the M6. Anyway, um, there's a very large archive of contemporary interviews done with people that weren't used in the film uh, that's in Birmingham Library and I use that a lot and I, one of the things I found very interesting is that why Dunlan didn't want to use the material and part of it is because there's an awful lot of material in there about the problem of the Irish ganger man um, and, and a kind of Irish on Irish uh, class problem and I, I, I wonder whether, I mean, it didn't fit necessarily with how he wanted to make the film. But um, so, so that's one example of where I did, did look at that kind of material. Uh, this lady here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I had an experience of um, living in Dublin uh, during the war with my grandmother. And my father was in the British Army. And then um, after the war, I went over later to join him and live with him for a while in England. 
But while I found the British very welcoming, very good-natured, etc., I always felt that there was a certain, to me anyway, looking down on me as an Irish person. I found that very hard to sort of accept. As I grew older, you know, I could accept it for a teenager or somebody like that. You know, this good-natured acceptance, but you felt you were a little bit inferior was a difficult thing to live with. Yes, I wonder whether you should ever have accepted it, as you, even when you got older. Um, I think one of the things that um, I was endlessly surprised by is the number of, you know, you know you'd read sociologists or, or, or other official reports um, who would, again, be ranking immigrants on, in, in terms of their desirability. And the Irish always come just above the Caribbeans. So, you know, the Poles are fine, they've settled nicely. Obviously, Latvians are great. Italians, if it weren't for the cat, you know, cat calling, they'd be great. Germans are wonderful. They're all better than the Irish. You know, they're just one step. The Irish are just one uh, hop above the West Indians. What's it about? I think it's partly about a kind of long history of British-Irish um, friction. I think it's partly about Catholicism, although how the Poles sort of have managed to kind of get around that is slightly unclear. But interestingly, of all the um, migrants from the, from the German camps in 45, 46, it was the Poles who were liked least. Uh, they were seen as um, more peasant-like and Catholic rather like the rather like the Irish. Hi there. Um, you can tell by my accent that I'm not from here. Um, just uh, from being an Australian, um, I was interested in your interview this morning that you, that, uh, you were saying that um, the British were seeking after the war to, were hoping to attract skilled Canadians and Australians and other people from the Commonwealth to come. But I'm wondering if there's a sense in your research of loss or sadness in Britain that so many people after the war emigrated to Australia and Canada and South Africa and other colonies, uh, so-called or Commonwealth countries, uh, and so there was a loss. And then the people that came weren't necessarily what, what we expected. Yes, absolutely. So um, Winston Churchill in 1947 blames this on the Labour government. He says, you know, if we were in power, we wouldn't be losing all these wonderful people who are going to Canada and Australia on the, on the kind of £10 resettlement schemes. Um, and it's just at the point where the Ministry of Labour is looking for people to arrive to work in, you know, jobs that the people going to Canada and Australia were not willing to work in. They did not want to work in, um, as domestics in TB hospitals in the middle of nowhere. They didn't want to do night shifts in the mills. They didn't want to you know, be working in mines. And why not take your 10 pound passage to Canada and Australia or Australia? You couldn't really go to both, I suppose. Um, maybe you could. Um, but yes, I, th th that was a huge, particularly from the Conservative government in that immediate post-war period. They used it as a stick to beat Labour with, definitely. 
Just growing up and listening to my dad and my uncles, five of whom on my dad's side went to England when they were younger after the war, and I'm sure that's not peculiar to a lot of experiences here, but there seemed to be from growing up, with the exception of maybe the success stories like the Murphy construction people, Joe Murphy and those, there seemed to be an element of denial within the Irish experience, and you talked about the clothes and you talked about the inherent sadness, but from listening to my father growing up, emigrants came home at Christmas, they were dressed to the nines, but the reality was somewhat different, and there were a lot of social problems when they came home or when they went back to England. You know, it's manifested in Arlington House and the work that they do at the moment. Was that reflected in other immigrant experiences with, you know, the Asian community, with the Caribbean community in, um, in England? And while I know there were success stories with the Irish immigrant experience, there were some very difficult stories in terms of social problems, alcoholism, homelessness, etc. I actually do think that the alcoholism and homelessness has been much more particular to the Irish migrant experience. I certainly would not want to suggest that was the majority Irish migrant experience at all. Um, as I said earlier, I think for Irish men, if they got married, they did better. And Irish women often really did very, very well as migrants, partly because um, they got a professional training. So many of them um, were, you know, maybe didn't have their leaving cert, but they could train as nurses in, in England. Um, I, you know, the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrant Act was supposed to um, stop migration happening or unskilled migration. I think it was a huge boon to Commonwealth and colonial migrants because it encouraged um, families to settle and uh, you know women to come and create homes. A large part of the problem about the alcoholism and the homelessness is these are people who, who didn't who didn't live in homes that were created early enough. Um, and so I think the Caribbean the Caribbean migrants have, have a different kind of problem in that many, many homes are solo, solo female-led. Um, and that, I think, has continued to be historically a, a, a difficulty. And it is clearly related to migration. I mean, further back, it's related to slavery. But the fact that women left their children and came to work is, is another kind of social difficulty that I think still hangs on that community. Um, but I, I would agree that the alcoholism and the homelessness, the Arlington House problem, is, is much more specific to the Irish than to any other migrant group. I'm being told that we're out of time. So um, I would just like to thank Claire Wells for talking to us today. And um, I think that you can probably buy a copy of her book outside. Um, I'm sure she'd be happy to sign it for you as well. Okay. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.